And good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is our 24th and final session on Dante's Inferno. Um, uh, so we are coming to the very bottom of hell today. But that means before we get started, um, we need to um, uh, talk a little bit about what comes next, because I have a plan. Uh, first of all, as I've mentioned before, the very next book that we're going to be doing is a special book added to the rotation at the request of one of our donors. Uh, this is going to be a piece of classic uh, science fiction. The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. Uh, so we're going to be talking about The Moon is a Harsh Mistress um, uh, starting not next week. So we're going to take next week off. We'll have a little, a little brief hiatus uh, in between our discussions, and that'll give you a little bit of a chance to start reading The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Uh, and we're going to start talking about The Moon is a Harsh Mistress Wednesday after next. So that would be on Wednesday the 26th of May uh, will be our first session for The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. So that is what we're going to do. Um, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress should take us up through, by my calculations, somewhere around the beginning of September. I've decided, by the way, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of thinking of throwing in the towel uh, on the subject of making reading schedules, <laughs> which have become more and more comically irrelevant the more times I do this, right? Uh, I'm, I'm sure this hasn't escaped your notice that when I make a nice schedule, people like it when I make these nice schedules, you know, that say like, read these chapters by this date, and this is what we're going to talk about. But honestly, I really think it <laughs> at this point does more harm than good. Uh, so exactly, Bruce, I'm thinking we just give it a week or two at a time. Um, we, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of give you in a So here's my, here's my, here's my word for week one. <laughs> read at least the first three chapters. First three chapters of Moon is a Harsh Mistress, uh, and uh, and then we'll see how we do uh, in week one. So, uh, so that's that's I think where the plan is going to be. But um, this is not this is not yet where the plan gets cunning. The cunning part comes next because, as I say, by my projections, I think we'll be talking about the Moon is a Harsh Mistress until we get up to the end of August, beginning of September, um, and. Um, so uh, that's going to be great. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this book. This is my favorite Heinlein book, uh, and uh, I think it's going to be great fun. There are going to be several weeks I'm going to have to miss over the summertime. I've got some family travel going on. I have to drive my son out to college, which is going to take a long time uh, to drive there and back. So anyway, I, it's it's you know there, there are going to be several times where I'm going to have to miss uh, one or sometimes even two. I think in at least one time I'm going to have to miss two weeks in a row. So. And so, uh, so oh, Bruce, he's going to the University of North Dakota. He is uh, uh, he is an aviator. Uh, my son is just finishing his private pilot's license and is looking to go into professional aviation, commercial aviation. Uh, so he's going to the University of North Dakota, which is awesome. And um, uh, at, but yeah, so we're going to be road tripping out to North Dakota at the end of August uh, as he goes out to school. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Anyway, okay. Uh, but point is. Uh, what we do next, you see, because here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, who knows? Who knows 
what happens on September 2nd, 20... There is a book that is scheduled to be released on September 2nd, which is a Thursday, which is kind of nice, actually. I kind of like that. Um, uh, sort of perfect to give us a little bit of reading time. Um, people realize what book gets released on September... It's scheduled to be released on September 2nd, 2021. The Nature of Middle-Earth edited uh, by Carl Hostetter. Um, uh, the Nature of Middle-Earth, edited by Carl Hostetter. And now I have been told that there is some very interesting stuff in this book. Now, here's the thing. You guys know that... Um, uh, you guys know that I, I haven't done anything, like, particularly special... Um, when the most recent <clears throat> Tolkien works have been released. Um, things like, uh, you know, the Fall of Gondolin and the Baron and Luthien book and stuff like that. I mean, I sort of, like, observed that it happened, you know, or, you know, it kind of came up once or twice, but we didn't, you know, discuss them or anything like that. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is that there was nothing new in those. There's not been a substantially new Tolkien book released in quite some time, actually. Um, and, um, anyway, so, uh, but from what I hear, there is actually new material. Now, the new material in the nature of Middle-earth, as I understand, uh, is, uh, from some of the stuff that he was writing and thinking about and working on, uh, uh very much at the end of his, um, uh, of his life up there near the end, that there's some stuff that Christopher did not include in the end, in the last two volumes, which are the only ones that we have not, right? That's correct. Yeah, that is correct. I'm looking up my shelf now, which is in a different place than it used to be. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so there's the War of the Jewels, which is, of course, the period of the Silmarillion uh, development, same as uh, Morgoth's Ring, but sort of the latter bits you may remember from the Mor our Morgoth's Ring discussion, that in Morgoth's Ring... Uh, he sort of he divided those two works up, not strictly chronologically uh, in terms of Tolkien's life chronology, uh, but rather in the content of the Silmarillion. So we were looking at the development of the sort of first half, right, of the um, uh, of the stuff um, of the Silmarillion stuff, and then the later Quintus Silmarillion material uh, and the revision process of the later Quintus Silmarillion material is in the War of the Jewels, Jewels, which is the War of the Jewels, which is what we had planned to do next. It's what we're supposed to be starting next uh, after Dante, but now it's been kind of bumped back a couple times now. Um, so the original plan, uh, right, the original plan was to do A Moon is a Harsh Mistress and then do the War of the Jewels. And then I'm like, but... Um, the Nature of Middle-Earth is coming out. And I know when The Nature of Middle-Earth comes out. Like, from what I have heard, and I've talked to people who've read it, um, uh, I had a really intriguing conversation. Uh, some of you might have seen on YouTube, perhaps, or on social media. Um, there was an interview that I recently did with the awesome folks down in Brazil. Um, uh they're on their YouTube channel down there. Um, I did a, a, a long interview with them. It was really fun. Um, and, uh, that was really, um, uh, that was cool. Afterwards, after we stopped recording, we were just kind of chatting and it turns out that one of the four folks down there who was interviewing with me, um, is 
translate is doing the Portuguese translation uh, of the nature of Middle Earth. And so he was good. He didn't like reveal anything. But he did provide some hints that there was some really, really interesting stuff there. So having heard what I've heard about the nature of Middle Earth, I'm like, people are going to want to talk about this anyway. Right. People are going to want to talk about this anyway. Um, I'm going to end up like needing to like read it and answer a whole bunch of questions. And then I'm looking at the calendar and I says to myself, hey, look, this is perfect. This lines up perfectly. What if we did this? What if we we get and read the nature of Middle Earth together as soon as it comes out, right? As soon as it comes out. So that way, like, just like we can all be reading it for the first time and discuss our way through it. Um, of course, like it would be like absolutely perfect if that were to come right after we had finished all of the uh, the the. Um, history of Middle Earth, and I was tempted to just say like, "Well, okay, maybe we'll, you know, we'll, we'll we can do that right after uh, we finish uh, the history of Middle Earth." But, but I, I know, I know people are going to want to talk about it, um, and I know pe- from what I've heard, people are going to have questions, right? People are going to have questions. So, I think it would be a really fun thing for us all to read this together for the first time. I'll be reading it for the first time. You'll be reading it for the first time. Everybody will be reading it for the first time. Um, And we can kind of talk our way through it. And if it turns out that there's, you know, um, that it's not as interesting as I've heard it's going to be, well, then we won't take so long to talk about it. We'll move on quickly. Um, But... um, but I don't think so. And Francis, exactly as you say, uh, history of Middle Earth isn't going anywhere. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so it just kind of seemed to me like a really fun opportunity to kind of have a moment, you know, like to uh, to, to talk about a really exciting new book in the moment, um, uh, you know, some new primary material. So uh, I I think that uh, I think that that'd be fun. So th- that's, that's my suggestion. Um, if we do this now, I know I've never like actually done this in the history of the Mythgard Academy. You know, we've been doing this now for eight years and I've never like just put a book in myself uh, for this, but it see, I just, so I wanted to suggest it. Uh, if people are like people, if you hate the idea, you know, send me an email and let me know how much you hate the idea. And, you know, if, if our electorate is strongly against this idea, then, you know, I can, I can, I can revisit the idea. Um, but, uh, but I thought it'd be fun and I thought people would, would like that. And if we do that, then there'll still be an election as we go towards the fall, as we get ready to do the nature of Middle Earth, we'll still do an election for the book to follow that. Um, so we'll do another non-Tolkien book, and then we can come back and do the War of the Rings. As, or sorry, the War of the Jewels. As, um, uh, as Franny says, it's 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 you know it'll 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 still be there. The War of the Jewels will still be there. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Right. That's true. Stephen says uh, people get to select a book uh, if they make a large enough donation. I've probably given enough to justify choosing a book. Uh, yeah, actually, I guess that's true. <laughs> if I just kind of pull on that way, uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps maybe if we uh, we could calculate uh, how much. Um, how much per hour I'd have to have been charging uh, for these all along if we count them as a cumulative donation uh, in order for me to be able to choose my own book. I guess probably, probably uh, I will have reached the threshold. Um, But um, (laughs) anyway, (laughs) so if people think that's a cool idea, that's what I'm hoping to do. 
Um, we'll see how the timing works out. That's, of course, going to be the trickiest thing. But as I said, I think that we can get through The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by the beginning of September. And then uh, said Thursday, September 2nd, is when the book is released. And then, um, you know, so we'd have until, you know, the following uh, the following week, which is you know, the 8th, uh, would be then the, the, the following Wednesday. Um, so maybe things will line up. We can just start right ahead on the 8th. Maybe we want to push it back and start on the 17th instead, or 15th instead. Um, to give people some time to make sure they can get the book uh, and start the reading. Um, uh, and Franny, I agree. I don't want to rush Heinlein either. Uh, so, um, uh, so we'll see. Um, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how that works. That, 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 that's the part that I'm least certain about um, uh, exactly how long we're going to take with Heinlein. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, uh, but um, I mean, it's not the same. It's not the same kind of thing as Inferno, right? It's not, uh, uh, it's not an entire volume of poetry. So, um, uh, you know, we won't be kind of treating it in exactly the same way. But anyhow, that is the road ahead. Um, so get your copies of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. Uh, read the first three chapters uh, for next week. Think about the nature of Middle-earth. Uh, again, if you have... Um, uh, if you have major reservations, let me know. But this is uh, this is my plan, unless there is a great outcry from the people. So, um, just to um, uh, just to let you know. Okay. Uh, great. Carrie is asking any particular edition on Heinlein. Mm, not that I know of. Let me consult on that. I, we're, I'm gonna ha we'll have the link up. I remember it's, it's gonna be two weeks from tonight when we have our first Heinlein session. Um, we'll have a page up with the link, uh, the new link uh, for our class sessions. Um, and if I have a recommended edition, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to put it there uh, as soon as I can. Um, uh, yeah, Franny, I don't think I'm not aware of any major. Um, addition issues uh with Heinlein I think um I don't think it's going to matter greatly um which edition we use so okay with that let us get back to hell because tonight uh we are going to meet the man downstairs uh we are going to come to the miserific vision the miserific vision uh at the bottom of hell uh that Dante has so um I am uh, so let's uh, let's jump back into it. You'll remember we were in the first section of the ninth circle of hell, um, and um, we had the folks who were like up to the neck and they were kind of bent over, right? Um, and we had the two who were face to face and banging heads with each other. Um, these are um, uh, these are traitors, right? Remember the, the subdivisions, right? We had uh, malice, right? Uh, subdivided into malice by force and fraud. Force was the seventh circle. Uh, and then by fraud was the eighth and ninth circle. Fraud then being subdivided to fraud against strangers and fraud against uh, non-strangers, right? So we had um, uh, we, we've had fr uh, fraud and betrayal of uh, people who uh, of uh, family, right? Um, uh, here at the beginning, um, yeah. Now, Stephen, uh, we didn't discuss that, but it's an interesting question. Um, why does the cold here not threaten Dante like the heat 
uh, up earlier did. Um, yes, it is implied that if he like, uh, you know, in the seventh circle, if he had left the, remember that, that raised path that he was on with the river of blood and the, the cloud up above that was deflecting the, or sort of extinguishing the, 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 the fires that were raining down right onto the plane. And, and there was the implication that if he'd stepped off that path out onto the plane, that he would have been burned. Um, and he doesn't seem to be in any physical danger. As he moves further and further along in the ninth circle, the wind gets worse and worse. And it, the implication, as we'll see, is that the, the wind is what's causing the freeze, right? Um, I don't know why Dante is not uh, as much at risk, like why he doesn't, uh, you know, report being cold uh, when he's down there. Um but um, anyway, yeah, uh, so I don't know that, uh, you know, is there a question of his is does it say something about him or does it say something about the ninth circle? Right. Um, I wonder if it says something about him. I mean, on the one hand, you may remember uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about places where Dante seems to be in a dangerous sort of sympathy with the other sinners in that particular area, right? Uh, places where he either um, actually sort of empathizes with them as, as seems to have been the case uh, during his many swoons uh, in the earlier part of hell. And there, and there were other places, especially uh, and repeatedly uh, through the eighth section, um, where he was sort of imitating the body posture, the, you know, the peculiar and tortured body posture, uh, of the sinners, uh, you know, and kind of paralleling them in ways that suggest, and then of course, until finally he's having to be dragged out of the eighth circle, uh, uh, you know, on the heels of a stern lecture from, um, a stern rebuke, uh, from Virgil there at the end. Um, so, yeah, he does. He does say that he's cold. Devar. I think it's with the wind, right? He, it's, he's feeling the wind, um, and there's the one point with the wind where he's he's like standing behind Virgil because Virgil is the only windbreak um, uh, that is uh, that is there. Um, uh, by the way, let me mention this, and I'll mention this again later. I put this image behind me. You know, this is the famous image of Satan in the ninth circle. Um, uh, I think this is the most famous visual representation of this. I hate this image. Uh, this is a horrible image, uh, like terrible in every way. I just, I, 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 abs there's nothing I don't dislike. I think almost nothing I don't dislike uh, about this picture. Um, it's, um, it's like they managed to get everything wrong about the ninth circle, except for the ice itself. It's like the only thing they get right uh, about this whole thing. So like, for instance, there's supposed to be <clears throat> nothing to shelter behind at all. And we've got all these like rock outcroppings and things. It's supposed to be this barren and featureless plain. The starkness and plainness of it is part of the feature of the ninth circle of hell. Um, and there aren't folks, we don't see bodies lying around like this, you know, like that and stuff. That's the whole point. When we get to the ninth, circle, the inner part of the ninth circle, it's, um, it's beyond that. Um, so, um, 
Yes, yes, yes. Satan, as several of you are pointing out, Satan, unlike Balrogs, does in fact have wings. Um, that's fine. Um, and they're batty wings. Okay, I guess that's, that's not wrong. Okay, so there's one thing they got a little bit right. Um, uh, he got a little bit right when he was making this picture. Um, I mean, look at that. They're up on this, like, promontory up there. Like, what's up with that? Overlooking them? Come on. Seriously. Um, seriously. Uh yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so, let me see. Hang on a second. Sorry, this is my uh, looking up images. Just a second here. I want to go to Bruce's image. <laughs> okay, that's better. That's better, Bruce. I like that better. <laughs> this is the Lego Inferno. Wow. Okay, hang on, hang on. All right, I'll share this in a second. Hang on. Here, here, here it is. Here it is. Okay. Oh man. <laughs> and then, so you can think of them. They then climb down underneath. Yeah, that's much better. That's better. And there's Judas in his mouth. <laughs> I like it. This is much better than that image. Yeah, much more accurate. Even got the little bat wings. Yeah, very good. <laughs> very good. Much better. <laughs> Vastly superior and more uh, more accurate image. Um, yeah, okay, anyway. So, um, but let me not jump ahead. Let's actually, let's actually go to the text here. How about that? Okay, okay. Um, so we were just stopping before what I think might be the most disturbing shade in all of hell, actually, and that's Count Ugolino. Um, I, some of you guys seem to be reasonably creeped out by the whole snake uh, section. I find this guy much worse. Um, and it's the casual detail that really kind of gets to me. But okay. Um, we had already taken leave of him, the other guy, the headbutting guy, when I saw two shades frozen in one hole, so that one's head served as the other's cap. And just as he who's hungry chews his bread, one sinner dug his teeth into the other right at the place where the brain is joined to the nape. No differently had Titius gnawed the temples of Menelippus out of indignation than this one chewed the skull and other parts. So he's chewing the base of his skull, like the, like the back of his neck, right? He's just like munching away at the back of his neck chewing on his skull and other parts like his spinal cord and brainstem and such. Um, I, I guess. Um, okay. And then we have um, Dante's address. Oh, you who show with such a bestial sign your hatred for the one on whom you feed. Tell me the cause. I said, we can agree that if your quarrel with him is justified, then knowing who you are and what's his sin, I shall repay you yet on earth above, if that with which I speak does not dry up. Once again, 
we've got Dante the fame monger down here, right? Again, as we've been seeing, right, for several cantos now. It was like something that kind of started a little while back and it's been getting more and more frequent. Now, like literally everybody that he meets, it's the first card that he plays, right? Hey there, want some fame? Allow me to bribe you with some fame, right? Did I tell you, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the traveling fame salesman, right? Do an interview with me and it's your ticket to fame in the world above. And that's what all damned souls really want, isn't it? Okay, so... Um, let me know who you are. Oh, you who show with such bestial sign your hatred for... First of all, <laughs> Dante seems to have this, like, fellow feeling for the guy who's gnawing... Like, he doesn't address the other dude, right? Like, he's like, oh, you who are being so inconveniently gnawed upon by that, like, feral dude behind your back, right? Um... Uh, no, he doesn't even address him, right? He addresses straight the chewing guy and says, Oh, you who show with a bestial sign, um, uh, with such a bestial sign, your hatred for the one on whom you feed. So, okay, I can tell you hate this guy, the guy you're chewing on, right? Which, honestly, seems a little weird to me. I mean, okay, like... I guess you probably wouldn't like just chew on somebody that you didn't hate, I suppose. I guess it's a sign of hatred. It's maybe it's a perfectly logical conclusion for him to jump to. You must hate that guy, right? Um I guess, but um tell me what's his sin? and I shall repay you. What did he do wrong? Not the chewer, right? Like, there's no... He doesn't even bring up the question. So, um... A, why are you in the ninth circle of hell? Mr. Chewing Shade. Uh, Mr. You know, masticator on my companion. Um, you know, uh, uh, Captain Cannibal down there. Um, why... A, why are you in hell? B, why are you in the ninth circle of hell? Um, C, why are you chewing on that dude? Right? Like, I mean, what did he do? Is It's not that that's not a logical question, but it doesn't feel to me like a, <clears throat> like a sufficient question. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, even assuming you hate him and assuming that your hatred of him might be... Uh, you know, is probably his fault, right? Which itself seems to me almost an odd assumption, right? I mean, um, this is the circle of betrayal, the ninth circle, right? Um, it's the circle of betrayal. And Dante assumes that the one who's chewing on the back of the other guy's head is the one who has done wrong. Right. You don't see somebody getting like eaten from behind and think like, hey, who's that guy who's stabbing you in the back over there? I mean, biting you in the back over there. Right. Um, in other words, in the context of the ninth circle, the guy chewing on the other guy. Yeah, I'm sure he's upset. <laughs> right. It looks like he's upset. But but seriously. Doesn't it seem like maybe he's not the victim? here? 
you know, like maybe he's the bad guy. Um, I I don't. I don't get it. And now, Stephen, I know I, I I agree with you. Like, there's it's not like that. I would think that, you know that it would be safe to assume that the guy who's having his head chewed on is innocent, right? Apart from the fact that he is in hell and indeed in the ninth circle of hell, um, but also that he is undergoing some kind of hideous torment. I mean, if it were like a you know a demon creature chewing on his the back of his head, you'd think like, oh yeah, well that's just like, you know, what he do to deserve that, right? Must have been something bad that he did, right? So yeah, no, I'm not suggesting that he is innocent or 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 a victim or something like that. No, I'm sure he is a was a a very bad man. Um, but I'm also have my suspicions about the other guy. That's all I'm saying. And um, Dante's approach just sort of, it interests me. It, I find it more and more curious. Um, and I think that we can see a change. Um, I'm not going to resist it anymore. Um, I'm, forced to the conclusion that Dante is degenerating, morally degenerating. I think he's getting worse as he gets down. We saw flashes, right? Um, but think in retrospect. Remember, we talked about the swoon back up in the second circle, right? Back in Canto V, uh, in the Circle of Lust, um, when he was listening to Paolo and Francesca, and he, uh, Paolo and Francesca, and he, and he faints, right? He, 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 he collapses there. Um, and we talked about that and his sort of sympathy for them, and um, uh, that it's dubious, morally dubious, right? Um, howsoever romantic it might be, though I think it's less romantic than others have made it. Um, but anyway, whatever. Um, the point is, this is what Dante is in a wor worse place, morally, I think. The Dante Pilgrim is in a much worse place now than he was at the beginning, when he was messing up before. Think, compare and contrast that ugly scene that we ended class with last week, where he's down first, like, accidentally kicking the guy in the face, right? And then actually bending down and pulling his hair out and to the extent that one of the other people very plausibly, one of the other sinners, plausibly mistakes him for a demon sent to torment this guy, right? Which, again, like, you know, maybe he deserves it. I've got no brief for the guy embedded in the ice. But this is... Dante has gone habitual. The thing that dis, that I found disturbing, that I think we were kind of disturbed by when he was, like, wanting to get into it with Filippo Argenti up in the Circle of Wrath, is habitual now. It's habitual now. Um, and... I do not think that this is an accident. And even this, this business with fame. Um, remember that I was, when we were first noticing that, I was trying to be cautious, right? I didn't want to leap to conclusions because um, the fact, I mean, the conclusion that um, how he was talking about fame is not morally sound, that's not a rash conclusion. That's perfectly obvious, right? Any very cursory reading of Boethius or any number of other moral teachers uh, of the Middle Ages would tell you that um, if you really are holding out um, fame, the justification of one's temporal reputation uh, among people living on earth, if, if you really 
think that that is like a super important thing that matters a lot, that's that's not good. That's not a good look. I mean, I, I this is this is this is fa- it is fact, right? It is it is fact that in the Middle Ages, Christian moral teachers taught that that was a, a wrong way to prioritize your life, right? Um, but what I was trying not to be rash about is that you know like. A mistake that modern readers often make, as I think I said at the time, is they they sort of they read the theory, right? The medieval Christian theory, like here's what the church taught. And then they kind of make the mistake of assuming that people actually believe and carry out all of those doctrines. Right. And get all like shocked and surprised when they don't. And it's like, have you ever never met people before? Um, Like, no, they don't. They don't live up to their newsflash. They didn't live up to their ideals in the Middle Ages perfectly either. So, you know, so again, like I I didn't want to I didn't want to assume I didn't want to assume maybe maybe Dante had a hang up there. Right. You know, and and it could have been unconscious, right? It could just be that Dante's in Dante's own personal moral system. He, that was one of his shortcomings, right? And so I didn't want to conclude that we were supposed to reel back in shock and be like, Oh, tut, 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 right? Uh, Dante's losing the way morally here, right? This is a sign of a moral degradation of the Dante Pilgrim character. The first time he said it, even the second time he said it, I didn't want to jump to that conclusion. Well, I feel better about it now, right? It has becoming more and more obvious and more and more frequent the deeper down that we get. Until now, um, that that getting mistaken by a demon just a few lines above this passage here um, is a low point for Dante. And it's ironic at the very least if not deeply telling, um, that he's reaching this kind of low point at the low point, at the ninth circle, as he's getting closer and closer to the cold heart of hell. Um, and by the way, Berlini talks about this some, this is, and this is not a novel um, observation of hers, um, but I did want to emphasize, as she explains... It is, in fact, a novel. Con- the idea that the bottom of hell, that the center of hell is frozen ice is novel. The- nobody had ever suggested that before. The The idea that that he depicts hell as frozen over um, is an innovation of Dante's. And I think it to be a very, um, a very smart one. I think that this is a brilliant turn for him to do, not just in the way that, you know, not just like a a sort of a bad modern writer who is desperate to say something different and so just like makes a story come out the opposite of the way that you expected just because they thought it was what you expected and didn't want what you expected to come true. Um, and you've ever read books like that or seen movies like that where it's, you know, or like a, like a murder mystery, um, where the person who it makes no, like there's just no really good sense of why that person would have done the murder, but they were, they clearly like, they're the one just because they're the one you wouldn't have guessed, right? Because it is not plausible. Anyway, like that kind of thing bothers me. I get annoyed by that kind of thing. Um, where like surprise and the fact that you couldn't figure it out is the most important thing. But anyway, um, that is not the principle on which Dante is doing this here. What I love about this, what makes this concept, the concept of the frozen heart of hell, uh, so brilliant is that, 
uh, he is, um, I think he's really capturing something here. You know, that the coldness spreads out from Satan himself. Satan is the source of the coldness, as we will see. Um, it's the wind uh, that comes from the flapping of the wings of Satan uh, that chills and freezes all of the ninth circle. Um, heat, you know, heat is associated with love and passion um, and even fiery passions, even inappropriate things like wrath, um, uh, you know, like in, in um, inordinate wrath. That's still... Um, in some ways better, right? Misdirected passion is better than this, this coldness, right? The absolute, this is, this is the absence of love. This is the void, right? Um, Satan does not even hate, right? Um, cause even hate is just a twisting of love almost, right? I mean, it, you know, I'm not the first one to observe that hatred and love are, uh, are, are, are to some extent akin, right? Um, Satan is not consumed by hatred. Um, he is this cold emptiness, almost this vacuum at the middle. Um, and um, exactly, Bruce, God is often associated with fire like the pillar of flame uh, in Exodus. Yes, flames coming down on the altar, um, the tongues of flame in Pentecost. Yes, lots of fire image associated um, uh, with God. And you're right. This is the opposite, right? You know, this is really, um, uh, when, <clears throat> so I think that Dante is making a really sophisticated answer to this sort of theoretical question, right? The, theor the theoretical question being like, what, what is Satan like? What would it be like to me if Satan has of all of God's creatures, distance himself most further, you know, furthest from God, right? If he is most, if he is farthest removed from everything that is, you know, and has most fully and permanently rejected all of the elements of God's nature, right? And the things that God promotes and stands for, right? Um, what does that look like, right? What does that look like? Um, and I think that, um, okay, I was going to say, I think that uh, Dante's answer is way more interesting than um, uh, Milton's answer, but I don't think Milton was answering that question, so uh, th that's not fair to say. But um, uh, uh, but anyway, um, Michael, that's a really interesting point. Michael says, if coldness, if the coldness down here is in some sense a lack of love, um, perhaps it doesn't affect Dante because he's here as a result of love. Perhaps it's the, the 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 love of uh the love of others that protects him, right? The love of Beatrice and, and through Beatrice the love of Saint Lucia and through Saint Lucia the love of the Virgin Mary and through the Virgin Mary the love of God himself, uh which is uh protecting God. Of course we've been hearing about how Dante is protected um by the mandate of heaven all the way through. Right. And I like that, Michael. Perhaps that is what we're seeing and why he doesn't freeze to death uh, here in the seventh circle of hell. Um, but um, but yeah, Zach, I, I, I am thinking, I am wondering if um, there is a, a. I don't know if it's a question. So Zach was asking, like, is is is, you know, Dante's kind of moral degradation here? Um, is this a. Um, 
a matter of the um, the sort of the sinners of hell kind of rubbing off on him as we go down. Um, you know, are they kind of influencing him uh, in this sense? Um, and I think it's possible, but I think more, Zach, that it's it's not that he's being made worse by his company exactly. Um, I think that it's it's more it's one of remember it's one of the allegorical levels of this story from the beginning, right? One level of allegorical understanding, one one sort of register on which we were supposed to have been reading this poem all along is that this is like the sort of the moral level, right? Of of this is that it's this is the story of Dante's own what's going on in Dante's own heart, right? Yes, he's traveling through hell, but we are also seeing an outward representation of Dante's own um, troubles, right? Um, in a sense, Zach, I think that morally speaking, what we are seeing here in the ninth circle is the the sort of a manifestation of where he was at the beginning. Right. First, we traveled out. He's, you know, uh, uh, is he in a dark forest here? Morally, yeah. I think he's lost in a dark wood right now. Right. And we're seeing that dramatized. We're seeing how that is, you know, that's being, that, that process is being recapitulated here. And it's good. He's, he is, he is reaching the lowest point here. Um, and things are going to change. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Devorah was re- remembering the dark wood exactly, and, and I don't think, I don't think that my my view of it would be not that um, this is um, not that this is the like he he was in a bad place to begin with, and it's gotten worse since then. <clears throat> There's a sense in which that's true. I mean, it's the way the narrative has unfolded, right? But again, I think on this level of reading the text, it doesn't exactly operate like that, right? Um, this is like the symbolic dramatization of where he was, right? The turning point in the dark wood, right? On that hill slope on the dark wood um, was um, uh, was Virgil's arrival, right? When Virgil is sent by... Uh, uh, by Beatrice to come and rescue him, right? And that moment, I think, is still, in a sense, still to come in the narrative, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And that's really interesting. Um, Serena's saying only God can can know evil, um, you know, can sort of experience evil, in a sense, uh, without being tainted by it. Uh, and she's saying that's kind of what Adam and Eve uh, did wrong. Um, they, tr- they, you know, they tried to experience evil in a godlike way uh, and they couldn't handle it. It corrupted them, right? It turned them. Um, Serena says, if Dante the Pilgrim thinks he can know everything about evil intimately without being touched by it, he's wrong. Um, and maybe that's one of the points that, he's, that Dante the Poet here is making about the nature of evil and the fall. Um, I, I think it's very possible. I mean, I, I think that, and this, of course, I can't help but think of the comments that people make, the, the kind of 
jocular comments that people make about how much fun Dante must have had putting all of his enemies into hell. It's not that he doesn't do that. He does put all of his enemies into hell. But it really changes the framework when you see that he's put himself into hell as well, right? Not in the same way, right? Um, but he has tied himself to it more. Um, when Dante is going, what we see, I think, more and more clearly um, by the time Dante gets to the bottom of hell is that very literally there but for the grace of God go I, right? There but for the grace of God goes Dante. He, um, does Dante deserve to be down here? We might have had our suspicions at first, right? Um, but now, seriously, um, what is there between, you know, uh, how do you differentiate between him and some of these other folks down here, right? Um, it's, um, it's very telling. Another thing, all of the focus on Italy, right? All, in all of his conversation, right? Um, notice how much more, like, he used to be a little bit more interested in moral instruction. We got, we got more moral lectures in the first half. Now, down here, we're just getting political proclamations. And often, by the way, pretty bigoted political proclamations, like openly bigoted political proclamations. Um, I'm not sure that that's a coincidence either, right? Uh, and again, an expression of this same kind of, not just this sort of hellish spirit, but this worldliness, right? Um, the in same kind of investment in the world that we see in his, um, uh, in his proclamations of, you know, his promotion of fame and his fame-mongering among all of the souls. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, okay. I know you're thinking, like, we're not making very good progress towards the end of the poem, but we are. Uh, because for some reason... Uh, it has come into my mind to draw these conclusions at the beginning of the class <clears throat> rather than at the end of them, um, which is, on the one hand, a puzzling approach for me to have taken. But I'm going to roll with it, and I think actually it'll end up being good. So anyway, okay, but let's get back to Ugolino, who's gnawing on the skull of the dude in front of him. Uh, Ugolino, whom I find really disturbing. That sinner raised his mouth from his fierce meal, then used the head that he had ripped apart in back. He wiped his lips upon its hair. And then he began. You want me to renew despairing pain that presses at my heart even as I think back before I speak. But if my words are seed from which the fruit is infamy, for this betrayer whom I gnaw, you'll see me speak and weep at once. I don't know who you are or in what way you've come down here, and yet you surely seem, from what I hear, to be a Florentine. You are to know I was Count Ugolino, and this one here, Archbishop Ruggieri, and now I'll tell you why I am his neighbor. There is no need to tell you that. Because of his malicious tricks, I first was taken and then was killed, since I had trusted him. However, that which you cannot have heard, that is, the cruel death devised for me, you now shall hear and know if he has wronged me. Um, I think what, what disgusts me the most, and again, I find this most disgusting, more disgusting than any other passage, uh, I think, um, just repellent, um, 
is the casualness, right? Those lines describing how like he's like gnawing away at this guy's brainstem, and then he just casually wipes his mouth on like the detail of wiping the mouth on the back of his head, and then speaking. Um, and notice, by the way, when he does begin speaking to Dante, he assumes that Dante's goal is to cause him additional torment. You want me to renew despairing pain that presses at my heart, right? Um, uh, but, um, but that's cool. That's okay. I'm going to um, tell you all about how I was done wrong by this guy that I'm chewing on who never says a word through this whole process, by the way. I don't know if it's because... Um, you know, this is part of his punishment, or if it's because Ugolino has made his way through to his windpipe, I don't know. But, um, uh, but he doesn't ever say anything. Um, he s speaks of how he was locked in a tower, later called the Hunger Tower, um, with his three sons. And he has this dream, this allegorical dream about the wolf, the old wolf and the young wolves, um, which he says he understands to mean these, um, uh, you know, uh, bandits or brigands in the mountains or whatever. When I awoke at daybreak, I could hear my sons, who were together with me there, weeping within their sleep, asking for bread. You would be cruel indeed if, thinking what my heart foresaw, you don't already grieve. And if you don't weep now, when would you weep? Notice the emphasis on tears. Are you weeping yet? Do you see what's coming? If you see what's coming, you should be weeping. If you don't weep now, when are you ever going to weep? Right? Weeping is important in the Ninth Circle, especially. They were awake by now. The hour drew near at which our food was usually brought, and each, because of what he dreamed, was anxious. Below I heard them nailing up the door of that appalling tower. Without a word, I looked into the faces of my sons. Oh, man. Oh, man. Without a word, I looked into the faces of my sons. The way that he, Dante, unfolds this story, I find, again, I just find it more chilling, more disturbing than any other story related by anybody uh, in the entire Inferno. Maybe it's just me, but... As soon as a thin ray had made its way into that sorry prison, and I saw, reflected in four faces, my own gaze, out of my grief, I bit it both my hands. And they, who thought I'd done that out of hunger, immediately rose and told me, Father, it would be far less painful for us if you ate of us, for you clothed us in this sad flesh. It is for you to strip it off. Then I grew calm, to keep them from more sadness, through that day and the next, we all were silent. Oh, hard earth, why did you not open up? But after we had reached the fourth day, Gado, throwing himself, outstretched down at my feet, implored me, Father, why do you not help me? And there he died. And just as you see me, I saw the other three fall one by one between the fifth day and the sixth, at which, now blind, I started groping over each. And after they were dead... I called them for two days, then fasting had more force than grief. Horrible. 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 Stephen, yes, Father, why do you not help me? Has echoes of Jesus' words on the cross. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, uh, 
Oof. Then fasting had more force than grief. Horrible. Horrible. Notice what Ugolino hasn't told us. Do you notice this? Um, do you notice what, what he hasn't said? What has he said? What has he said? He's told us how he died. Betrayed. By his meal. Right? The dude he's eating. Um, yeah, he, he didn't tell us why he was locked up. Like, what led to the... Presumably it was a betrayal by, you know, uh, the unhappy meal in front of him. Right? But... Um, sorry. That's quite good. <laughs> the unhappy meal is how I'm always going to label him from now on in my head. Uh, but anyway, yes, Leanne, he hasn't told us. And Serena said, exactly. Whom did he betray? Why is he? He's here too, right? He's here too. I mean, this is a horrible story. Um, whom did he betray? His kids. Did he betray his children? Um, uh, uh, yeah. Um, he never says. He never says. He's, I mean, he's here, right? He was also cast, um, you know, by Minos down here into the Ninth Circle. He betrayed somebody, right? And the fact that we find, you know, Mr. Cannibal dude who ate his own children, as he suggests horribly in that last line, ate the bodies of his children two days after they died, he says. Right? Um, so the fact that, you know, Papa Cannibal there is chewing on an, on this guy in the afterlife, right? Down there in hell. Um, I mean, we have a motif here, right? The cannibal motif. Um, I, um, yeah, Bruce, exactly. I can't help. The fact that he's eternally being a cannibal suggests to me also that it was cannibal. Um, uh, cannibalism in some sense that got him down here um, but it can't be what he describes it can't be I mean look eating the bodies of your children that's horrible that's horrible but it doesn't get you to the ninth circle of hell he didn't did he I mean I guess you could construe that as a sort of betrayal but I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that's Ninth Circle worthy. Eating your son's bodies after they die. I, again, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not defending it, but I don't think it's Ninth Circle worthy. I don't know what he's implying. Um, 
Bruce is asking me if I'm suggesting that he actually killed and ate his sons. I don't know if I'm suggesting that, Bruce, so much as if, if I'm wondering. Right? By his account, he waited until they were dead. But I can't help but think, Bruce, that had he not waited until they were dead, um, had he killed them first and eaten them afterwards, that's Ninth Circle worthy right there. Right? And we're not told anything else. And we're not told anything else. Um, I agree, Michelle, that mere cannibalism, that is murdering someone in order to eat their body afterwards, um, would seem to be a seventh circle kind of thing, violence against others, right? But remember, we've seen several examples of this where someone was clearly guilty of violence against others, and yet they were in the eighth circle, for instance. Um, because that would seem to trumpet, right? I mean, that would seem to, uh, to override. Uh, so... If he murdered, if he did, and I'm not accusing Ugolino of this necessarily, but if he did, um, uh, if he did kill his own children um, in order to eat their bodies, then I, that would, the betrayal of those who trust in you um, and depended upon you uh, would, that would be worse than murder. I think, by the logic of uh, hell as we've, as Dante's been showing it to us. Um, like I said, I don't know that that's necessarily what he's implying, but it is interesting to me that at the very least, the actual sin of Ugolino himself is left an open question. He never talks about it, right? Um, but I wonder, again, from the... Bruce, I, it's exactly the same line of thinking that you had. The fact that he is recapitulating his act of cannibalism ceaselessly and unrepentantly, I would add, right? Um, uh, seems to me to sort of suggest it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm not sure that it's crucially important. I just can't but speculate with... Uh, horrified fascination about that. Um, but the other thing that kind of horrifies me in a different way um, is Dante. So here's Dante's response. When he had spoken this with eyes awry, again he gripped the sad skull in his teeth, which, like a dog's, were strong down to the bone. Okay, so Ugolino's just told this story, and then he immediately turns back and starts chewing on the guy again, Right? To which Dante responds, Ah, Pisa, you the scandal of the peoples of that fair land where sea is heard, because your neighbors are so slow to punish you. May then Caprara and Gorgona move and build a hedge across the Arno's mouth, so that it may drown every soul in you. For if Count Ugolino was reputed to have betrayed your fortresses, there was no need to have his sons endure such torment." O oh, Thebes renewed, their years were innocent and young. Brigata. Oh boy. Um, Uguicione? Uguicione? Okay, that's my best guess. Uh, that one defeats me. And the other two, my song has named above. Gado and the other one. Um, okay. Um, okay, now I guess maybe he's there just for betraying the fortresses of Pisa, I guess. Okay. Yep. Yeah, sure. 
betrayed the fortresses of Pisa. But Bruce, I still can't get away from the recapitulation of the cannibalism throughout. But whatever. It's fine. I don't insist on it. Um, Dante, however, the Dante Pilgrim, anyway, is 100% on Ugolino's side. Right? Ah, Pisa, you the scandal of the peoples. Scandal of the peoples. Right? May Caprara and Gorgona move and build a hedge across the Arno's mouth so that it may drown every soul in you. Yeah. Pisans. Treating Ugolino and his killing his children. That was horrible. Yeah. Oguicione. 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 Okay. All right. Oguicione. Um... Yeah. Carita says, if I get a fish, I'm naming it Uguicione. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uguicione. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Appreciate it. Um, okay. Um, Dante's takeaway is that everybody in Pisa is horrible and should be ashamed of themselves. Oh, Thebes renewed. Okay. All right, Dante. Um, hang on to this. Hang on to this. We passed beyond, where frozen water wraps a rugged covering, still other sinners, who were not bent, but flat upon their backs. Their very weeping there won't let them weep, and grief that finds a barrier in their eyes turns inward to increase their agony, because their first tears freeze into a cluster and, like a crystal visor, fill up all the hollow that is underneath the eyebrow. And though, because of cold, my every sense had left its dwelling in my face, there you go, Devar, is the passage you were remembering, right? Where he is complaining about the cold, right? He can't feel his face anymore because it's so cold. Um, just as a callus has no feeling, nonetheless I seem to feel some wind now, and I said, my master, who has set this gust in motion? For isn't every vapor quenched down here? And he to me, you shall, you soon shall be where your own eye will answer that, when you shall see the reason why this wind blasts from above. Um, okay, okay. Um, so, couple couple things here. Um, first of all, is Dante in danger from the cold? Well, we don't hear that he's in danger of perishing, but it does have an effect on him. His every sense had left its dwelling in my face. Right? So his face has become cold just as a callous has no feeling, right? Is he in danger of freezing to death? We don't have much reason necessarily to think that he's in danger of dying. Um, but is, it, is he affected by the cold? Yeah, he seems to be. All feeling has left his face. Now, on the one hand, we've all been there, right? 
I said my son was going to North Dakota. We did a campus tour in North, North Dakota in February. It was very cold. It was negative 16 without the wind chill when we were doing our campus tour. Um, so, I, you know, I, I get that. I get that. I, I know what it's like to have your face senseless with the cold. Um, but I think there's more here. Notice, once again the parallelism with the sinners that Dante is establishing. Immediately before, he describes his own senseless face, his own face which is like a callus, right? Um, like a callus, um, you know, a spot that has been hardened, right, by repeated contact. Um, just like a calloused, his face is like a calloused spot, Right, in the cold of the ninth circle of hell. And right before that, we got the description of the sinners who are lying on their backs and weeping, and so their tears fill up the wells of their eyes and freeze solid, like a crystal visor across their face. And this is part of their torment, that their gr grief that finds a barrier in their eyes turns inward, to increase their agony. They're crying on the inside, and that's part of their torment, right? There is no outlet for their grief because their very, uh, their very sort of expression of grief is itself frozen. Um, and Pensacola, remember I said tears really important in the Ninth Circle, right? Um, yeah, Serena says, I don't think it's his face that's the most calloused part of him. How about his heart? Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that's one of the things that we're, that we're seeing here. Um, his, um, and it's not just that he doesn't have pity. In a sense, I think one of his problems with Ugolino is he's, he has too much pity, right? I, I, I get, what? If Ugolino's betrayal of the fortresses is indeed what got him down here, right? Um, if that, notice how Dante just sort of passes that off, right? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Th that's less important than the horrible thing that was done to him. It's like, you know, darn peasants who all deserve to die, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree, Serena. I do think that we can see some um, uh, calluses uh, on his on his heart there. Um, um, interesting. Uh, Franny's wondering if it's significant that he is... We have three faces, right? We've got Dante's senseless face. We've got the sinner's frozen faces, right? Sticking up out of the ice. And we've got the guy's chewed face, right? Now his face is being chewed on from the back up, right? So it's not like he's being chewed on the, his face from the front. Um, but, um, um, but yeah, this is after that. This is after that. Um... Yeah, yeah. And Michael, I agree. He first feels the presence of the cold. He first describes this right after, you know, his hateful response, hatefulness directed towards the people of Pisa. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, no, so again, I think we, we can see this kind of connection that I think this connection between him and the damned is getting um, uh, is getting more and more close. Right. So maybe. Maybe I guess I should say he is in danger in the ninth circle. Not physical danger. Um, 
but that we're seeing him in spiritual danger uh in i was about to say a deeper spiritual danger than we've ever seen but um that would be a pun um but um okay let's uh let's keep it so and one of these those sad sinners in the cold crust cried to us O souls who are so cruel that this last place has been assigned to you take off the hard veils from my face so that i can release the suffering that fills my heart before lament freezes again again i love this idea that the this the coldness the coldness which freezes not only pity but even lament lamentation itself right um lamentation to weep and lament would itself be a relief right but even that is frozen here in the proximity of Satan. That's what this freezing, this sort of stasis that is brought to all sort of proper emotional responses. But, um, but the, once again, Dante's being mistaken, not for a demon this time, but for a sinner. He assumes, the sinner assumes, understandably, oh, you must be new here, right? Oh, souls who are so cruel that this last place has been assigned to you, right? Um, so it kind of, it, it goes without saying. Right. Um, that Dante has Dante belongs here. Right. And again, it's, he's mistaken. Right. The soul doesn't know what he's talking about. He can't see them. Right. So he can't even tell that they're really, you know, he's really alive and all that kind of thing. Um, but. Um, uh, but, yeah, yeah, I think that it's. Um, uh I think it's not a coincidence. I, I, I again think it's it's a, yet another piece of that whole picture. Um, Dante's Dante's fitting in here, way way too well, in lots of different ways, right? In lots of different manifestations. But um, um, to which I answered, if you'd have me help you, then tell me who you are. If I don't free you, may I go to the bottom of the ice? So here's Dante, dooming himself to the ninth circle, right? May I go to the bottom of the ice? Which would be if you betray your benefactor, but that's, I don't know, this would be a little bit of hyperbole to call this guy his benefactor if he, you know, uh, um, tells him who he is. But, um, but anyway, you know, he's, he's calling the curse of the seventh circle upon himself if he doesn't help him, um, if he, the frozen dude, tells him who he is, right? Okay. Um, if you'd have me help you. No, no, he's not offering him fame. Maybe that's better. I'm not sure it's better. Spoiler, I'm not, I'm not sure it's better. Anyway, okay. He answered that. I am Fra, Alberge Fra Albergio, the one who tended fruits in a bad garden, and here my figs have been repaid with dates. But then, I said, are you already dead? So Dante's like, wait a second. Frau Bergio still alive. How are you here? And he to me, I have no knowledge of my body's fate within the world above. For Ptolemaea has this privilege. Quite frequently, her, the soul falls here before it has been thrust away by Atropos, and that you may with much more willingness scrape these glazed tears off my face. Know this, as soon as any soul becomes a traitor, as I was, 
then a demon takes its body away and keeps that body in his power until its years have run their course completely. The soul falls headlong down into this cistern. Okay, do you, um, do you follow that? Um, yeah, so Ptolemaea is a reference. It's, it's people who betray their guests um, are in Ptolemaea. Um, okay. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing about this. Um, I can offer no explanation or justification of this, theologically speaking. Um, as soon as any soul becomes a traitor, then a demon takes its body away and keeps that body in his power until its years have run their course completely, the soul falls. So if you betray someone, your soul goes straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not get any opportunity for repentance and just go straight to hell. And your body, though it still keeps walking around, is walking around under the power of a demon for the rest of your days until your body dies under the natural course. Um, uh, wow. Wow, I, 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 um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do or say about this. It's shocking. I do not know offhand of any precedent for this doctrine. I don't know where Dante gets this idea. I think he might have made it up. Um, Serena says so many questions. I know, me too. Um, I, yeah, I, I, um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I got nothing. I think I can promise I can't answer anybody's questions about this because I understand this not at all. Now, you're right, Stephen. He says that souls frequently, quite frequently, the soul falls here before. It has been thrust away by Atropos, who is Atropos, of course, is the one of the fates who snips the cord, right? So it's a reference to death. Um... Uh... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Certainly. As far as I know, Dante invented this. Um, this idea is so crazy that I don't know whether or not to understand this is yet another symptom of the Dante Pilgrim's own degradation. Um, uh, is... Fra Alberigo, Fra Alberigo, I said his name wrong. Um, is he wrong? Is he deluded? Does he not really know? Is he lying to Dante? Is he, 
I mean, he could be, right? Mr. Betrayer of his guests, right? It, maybe Dante's his guest standing on his patch. I don't know. Um, maybe it's not true and Dante buys it. Um, I don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> Corita says, when you can't decide between zombie and demon-possessed, uh, we say, why not both? <laughs> right. I'm not saying that the idea that Fra Alberigo, who may well actually read this text, right, um, uh, that him and his friends finding out that he actually is a demon-possessed zombie, I'm not saying that, there's, that that's not fun. Uh, that there's not potential fun involved there, right? In saying this of people actually alive at the time, right? Um, but um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, see, yeah, Serena, I uh, uh, a piece of mordant comic invention that's Mandelbaum's notes right yeah um comic I guess from one point of view there's some dark comedy there but this is too much of a big deal I mean big deal uh, when you start messing with people's opportunities for repentance you're in deep theological waters instantly. I mean, there is a continental shelf drop-off to the deep theological waters that you get yourself into once you start trying to abrogate people's ability to repent of their sins. It's a big deal. And that's what he's done here, right? That's what he's saying here. Um, and again, I find myself, this, theologically speaking, this idea is so nutso, um, and the effect of it, exactly as we we're sort of suggesting there, the effect of it is so slanderous, right, of people still alive in the world, that I, that I can't help but wonder, I can't help but associate it with the question of Dante's, the, the Dante Pilgrim's own degradation, right? He isn't the origin of this exactly, but is it, um, is it a bad sign that he buys it? Um, uh yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> Stephen, I guess you could reason yourself around it, maybe. Right? Stephen is saying, well, how would that really differ from God striking them dead at the moment? Right? They get struck dead. And so they're still, like, you know, if you commit a horrible sin like this and then God just whammies you, right? Wham! And you drop dead. And your sins, you're going to hell because you don't have a chance to confess, right? Lots of people don't have a chance to do last rites. You know, sudden death happens, right? Um, okay, so what's the difference between God just smiting them? Because like the fact that a demon is still walking around dressed in their corpse for a long time afterwards is disturbing, and creepy, but doesn't necessarily, by that logic, Stephen, um, say anything particularly different about their souls. I think the reason that I'm going there, Stephen, is that I, I, I can't, I, 
I, I, I see what you mean. But what I can't get around is this idea of this sin to which there is this immediate response, right? Like, you are auto-damned. And so Zach, yeah, Zach, of course, is thinking about the sin against the Holy Spirit, you know, which is mentioned in Matthew chapter 12 as the only unforgivable sin. Um, is, uh, is that it? No, it's not, Zach. Um, I mean, that is to say, let me, well, let me clarify what I mean by that. That is not, this is not the sin against the Holy Spirit as the sin against the Holy Spirit is defined in any traditional medieval um, explanation. Um, when the medieval church fathers talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit, they are all in general agreement that the sin against the Holy Spirit is like refusal to repent. It's the, it's, it's the denial of God's grace. Um, you know, when God says, I want to forgive you and you say, no, I refuse the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore that's unforgivable because it's like by definition, the unforgivable sin in that you are refusing the means of forgiveness. And so of course you cannot possibly be forgiven for the sin of turning away the mechanism of forgiveness. Right. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive. I've not read these passages for a while, but I'm almost positive. That's how Aquinas defines it. Uh, that that's how Augustine defines it. Um, that was, it's my memory of the general understanding um, of the sin against the Holy Spirit, um, uh, you know, at this stage. Uh, so, no, like, it, I mean, so <clears throat> on the one hand, Zach, yeah, it sounds like that. Exactly. But that's my problem is that he's like, what, betrayal? Seriously? Being a traitor? So betraying, so, I'm not saying it's not horrible, right? It's not a really, really bad thing to do. Um, but for anything, other than that, anything other than I am, you know, opting out of forgiveness itself. Yeah, that's unforgivable. Logically, right? Um, but to say that any sin that you could perform, betraying your guest, betraying your benefactor, betraying that any such sin um, could um, just be like auto damnation the minute you do it, right? You commit that sin, then blam straight to hell with you. That's... No. <laughs> no. No. It's a big deal. That's a bit... So that's, Stephen, that's why I can't really accept that. Because he says, like, it's, it is the immediate... Damnation is the immediate consequence. Or at least, quite frequently, <laughs> damnation is the immediate consequence of committing this sin. That, that this is a sin... Which is you just you just, you're not given the opportunity to repent it. It's not like suicide, which is traditionally understood to be a mortal sin, as we discussed before. Logically, a mortal sin of which you cannot repent um, because you've committed a mortal sin, which is murder. You've murdered yourself, um, and yet, of course, logically, you cannot repent it before your own death because, in committing it, you're dead now. Um, so, logically, they couldn't get around that. They were like, "Yep, okay, so." Um, uh, the only people we can be a hundred percent sure, the only dead people we can be a hundred percent sure are not saved, you know, are, are, you know, are like died in their sins are suicides. And that's why suicides traditionally were not buried in consecrated grounds, why they're buried at the crossroads instead of being buried in the churchyard, um, because they died in their sins. Um, anybody else, anybody else, um, logically, 
even if there's a split second, right? Um, still in theory, right? In theory, they might have repented in that moment, and God heard their repentance, right? Um, uh, but apparently not, not in the case of betrayal. Um, I don't know. Like I said, I can't help but th I, I can't understand it, but I can't help but think it's a bad sign. <laughs> I can't. It's just this is so sketchy and sketchy in way like it's a different kind of sketchy. Like there's a kind of clumsiness, a theological clumsiness to this idea, which is just not in keeping with the rest of the book. It's I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Um. Yeah. No, I agree, Stephen. It might needn't necessarily be betrayal in every sense, but I don't care. Betrayal in any sense. Um, I, I, I don't I, I don't care what the sin... Again, you've got, like, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and you've got suicide. Those were those two, the two sort of special cases, right? Um, and they're both... Notice that they're both special cases on logical grounds. But there is no possibility of any other sin, howsoever bad, howsoever horrible, um, that logically can't be repented of. Um, anyway, um, but look what happens next. But now reach out your hand, open my eyes. And yet I did not open them for him. And it was courtesy to show him rudeness. Ah, Genoese, a people strange to every constraint of custom, full of all corruption, why have you not been driven from the world? For with the foulest spirit of Romagna, I found one of you such that for his axe in soul he bathes already in Cochitis, and up above appears alive in body. Okay. Um... Uh... Right. So it was a bad day for the Pisans, and it's now similarly a bad day for the Genoese as well. Right. Um, Dante, who called the ice of the ninth circle upon himself if he did not um, remove the ice goggles from the sinner uh, as he promised, doesn't do it. And says that it was courtesy to show him rudeness in some really twisted from some really twisted logical perspective maybe it is I guess um, and then launches into another condemnation of an entire people group right and notice how he points to this startling revelation that is the fact that a living dude's or a dude that everybody thinks is alive still um, uh, is already in hell, right? He's done this he's doing this expose, right? But it's not just doing an expose about Fran uh, on, on, on what's his name? On something or other Alberigo, right? Alberigo. It's not just doing an expose on Fra Alberigo. It's an expose of the Genoese people, right? The fact that he draws such a 
deeply shady conclusion. If we weren't comfortable with the Pisan thing, we've got to be, even if we weren't comfortable with the Pisan, un uncomfortable, we've got to be uncomfortable by now, right? We've got to be uncomfortable by now, right? Um, uh, yeah, Leanne, I agree. He's definitely, it's, it seems like he's turning to the dark side, right? Um, Dante better get to the end of this trip right quick because uh, things are getting pretty bad, I think. Vexilla regis pro deunt inferni, toward us, and therefore keep your eyes ahead, my master said, to see if you can spy him. Time out a second. Why did Virgil just lapse into Latin there? For a particular reason. That line, which, hang on, I'm going to forget. That, somebody remind me of the translation of that line. Somebody put that line. I, I'm, I'm not going to get it exactly right. It's about the like the flags of the... What is it? I think I got it here somewhere. Um, yeah. The banners of the King of Hell draw closer. There it is. The banners of the King of Hell draw closer. Um, and yes, Michael, exactly. The reason why that's there is that everybody in the audience would recognize this. Okay. Not everybody, but many people in the... People who pay attention in church would recognize this. Um, this is from the liturgy. Specifically, it's from the liturgy of the week leading up to Easter. Remember the whole Easter thing, right? The, the whole parallel with the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, the banners of the king of hell draw nearer. Uh, the banners of the king of hell draw toward us. So he is, at the beginning of the last canto of Inferno, he recalls that liturgical moment. The banners of the king of hell uh, comes towards us. Um, except they're moving towards the banners of the kings of, of the king of hell, right? And what is what are the banners of the kings of hell that they're seeing, right? Just as see if you can spy him. I spy with my little eye something that begins with S. Just as when night falls on our hemisphere, or when a heavy fog is blowing thick, a windmill seems to wheel when seen far off, so then I seem to see that sort of structure. That's a joke, right? I'm laughing. Are you laughing? I'm laughing here, right? That's funny. I think it's funny on purpose. It's got to be, right? Think of all the epic similes that we have looked at over the course of this poem so far, right? Think of the sometimes bizarre, sometimes... But think of the grandiose comparisons that have been made. And now here we are. We're coming to the floor of hell, right? The center of darkness in the entire cosmos. And the prince of the powers of the air is there in front of you. Satan himself. And you're reaching for an epic simile, right? And you, so you compare the wings of Satan himself to a windmill? It's kind of like 
when you can almost see a windmill through the dark and the fog, that was kind of what it was like. Re really? A windmill? I could see it the other way around. You know, if you were out on a really creepy night, like evening or something, like it's dusk, just after dusk and stuff, and it's not fully dark and it's a little foggy, and, and you see a windmill in the distance, right? And it looks really ominous. You can see the movement and just the sort of the shape of the, and, you know, as, as, as the, 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 the fog is being stirred, and um, uh, you compare that. Right. It is like, you know, and then like it, 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 it moved in the darkness, like the wings of like the, the hideous bat wings of some immeasurable demon. Right. That would, that, that, that would be good. Right. That would be good. Um, uh, but the other way around is absurd. Uh, is it just me? Is it absurd? I think that's funny. I think that's I, an epic simile comparing a pretty darn epic thing to something super mundane. That's supposed to help us get a glimpse of this? Is that that's supposed to set the mood here? <laughs> right? This is pointing us in the right direction, is it? Right? This is cueing our responses to the revelation of Satan at the heart of hell? When a heavy fog is blowing thick, a windmill seems to wheel when seen far off. So then I seem to see that sort of structure. Then I saw a vaguely windmill-like structure off, off in distance, really. Now, on the one hand, like, I am sure in the days before, you know, um skyscrapers, windmills were much more imposing and impressive features of the landscape. I absolutely acknowledge that. Like, um, coming upon a windmill in the darkness might have been much more terrifying and intimidating, um, you know, in the 13th century than I am perhaps imagining. Uh, and I want to, I want to you know, acknowledge that. But I still think it's funny. Um, it is the most unexpected and homely. It could be worse. I mean, it could be more homely. But, um, uh, but I find it deeply weird. I f that's, it's just simply, that simile is simply the most crashing piece of anticlimax in the entire poem that I know of. I mean... That sort of structure? I saw something. I saw the Lord of Darkness, and he was windmill esque. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's funny. That's why I, I, I laugh. I can't help it. I can't help it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it is true. It is true, Dairuin, that windmills make creepy, creaking noises too. Agreed. Yeah, no, I. it's. It's possible that he's capturing something and really making it real to people's experiences in a way which is not absurd. Maybe. I'm just willing to concede the possibility 
but I won't go beyond possibility. I that sort of structure, really. Um, yes, and uh, many of you are thinking about Don Quixote, of course, understandably. Um, well, obviously, Dante's not thinking of uh, Don Quixote. The question is, was Don Quixote thinking of uh, uh, Satan um, in this moment? Uh, maybe. Maybe he was. Um, and next, because the wind was strong, I shrank behind my guide. There was no other shelter. And now, with fear, I set it down in meter. I was where all the shades were fully covered, but visible as wisps of straw in glass. There some lie flat and others stand erect, one on his head and one upon his soles, and some bend face to feet, just like a bow. All of these souls completely embedded in the ice. I love this description, like wisps of straw in glass. Um, he can't interview any of the souls down here, right? Because they're all completely embedded in the ice, you can see them. Um, uh, you can see them, but um, uh, only only shapes to see, not to touch. Uh, Stephen says, is it meant to be uh, to speak to the comparative impotence of Satan? We expect Satan ruling on a throne, and instead he's just part of the machinery of hell, punishing sinners in his own punishment. Um, it certainly is a lessening of Satan. Right, Satan. Satan's a big deal, and even in his description, it's a big deal. Um, but um, but he's not the kind of big deal that we might have expected. Um, Dante doesn't get an interview with Satan. It's not even obvious that Satan can talk. Well, his mouth is full. Mouths are full. In any case, um, but is there something to? Uh, Stephen, another way, perhaps, to paraphrase your question, this might not be fair, but maybe it is. If it is a joke, the comparison to a windmill, um, is it a joke at Satan's expense? Maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe there is a sense in which we are supposed to... He doesn't... Maybe it is the right frame of mind to be looking at Satan in the middle of hell. right? Rather than an epic simile which conveyed something grander, right? Something um, put us in a... We, maybe we don't want to feel awe when we're looking towards Satan. Maybe there is something like that That what we see in the end is a, you know, sort of homely, pitiful, mechanical thing, right? Um, uh, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. O oh, reader, do not ask me of how I grew faint and frozen then. I cannot write it. All words would fall far short of what it was. I did not die, and I was not alive. I think for, your, think for yourself, if you have any wit, what I became, deprived of life and death. The emperor of the despondent kingdom so towered from the ice, up from mid-chest, that I match better with a giant's breadth then giants match the measure of his arms. Now you can gauge the size of all of him if it is in proportion to such parts. If he was once as handsome as he now is ugly, and despite that raised his brows against his maker, one can understand how every sorrow has its source in him. Um, 
by the way, uh, you can do the math here. Um, if you go back and look at the way that the giants are described and stuff, you can actually create an algebraic equation, which leads you to be able to calculate the height of Satan. Um, it's, um, but I'll, I'll leave that piece of homework for you to do on your own. Um, but, um, yeah, ah, uh, Serena, yeah, I'll, we'll get to that. I'll definitely get to that question. Um, yeah, yeah, so, um, but notice Dante's state. Notice Dante's state. Faint and frozen. Ooh, yikes. I did not die, and I was not alive. I get, this gets me back to this question we've been talking about for a while. Was Dante in danger in the Ninth Circle, in physical? Why didn't he freeze to death? If he was in danger of burning in, earlier on, why, did, why wasn't he in danger of freezing to death down here? Well, maybe he was. Not in physical danger. It's not talked about in the same way, right? Um, the conclusion we suge I suggested earlier on is that he doesn't seem to be in physical danger, but in spiritual danger, very much in physical danger. Um, and... Uh, um, I, um, I think that we can see the profundity of that here. I did not die and I was not alive. Um, think for yourself, if you have any wit, what I became deprived of life and death. He is faint and frozen. Um, if Dante's... journey thought of on the allegorical level of his own life and his own experience has been a downward trend this is the bottom right here this is the nadir of dante's journey um he comes down before satan the one in whom every sorrow has its source and he is frozen by the wind of the wings of Satan. He is frozen. He did not die, but he was not alive. Um, he has been put into this stasis, deprived of life and death. There is a kind of... Uh, yeah, deprived of death is a really fascinating phrase, isn't it, Leanne? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Oh, Nadia, that's a really good uh, illustration. Um, Nadia points out that um, the windmill thing is also like an inversion. Um, right, the windmill, of course, is being blown by the wind, right? It's harboring the, or harnessing, rather, the, uh, the power of the wind in order to perform work, right? Whereas the wings that are being compared to the windmill... Um, are themselves generating the wind itself, which is do, which is kind of doing the work or doing the non-work, right? It is an inversion, um, uh, preventing the making everything dead, bringing everything to this stagnancy, this stasis, this faintness and frozenness that Dante feels he's going to faint again, or he is kind of fainting again. This, I think, is Dante's ultimate faint. Ultimate, not fate, F-A-T-E, his ultimate faint, right? Um, we've seen him faint a bunch of times before. Here, this is, this is it. 
it's like death, but it's not death. He's deprived of death as well as deprived of life, right? He is brought face to face in front of Satan, confronting the source of every sorrow, um, freezing on the ice of the ninth circle in this love void of the ninth circle, right? This, this vacuum, this spiritual vacuum, which is being blown around, which is why he was asking, like, how is there air disturbance down here? I don't, I don't understand. Um, why are there air currents going on? There shouldn't be air currents, right? Um, but they are, Nadia, exactly as you're suggesting, it's inverted air currents, right? Which don't provide energy like wind does to windmills, right? Instead, it it saps everything, right? Um, just like in the shades with their eyes covered, it stops up the um, the the wells of lamentation, right? And forces even their own sorrow uh, inside, right? Stops everything. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Stephen says he sounds like he's being struck down by the curse that he called on himself earlier. Maybe, maybe. Um, more, more on Satan. I marveled when I saw that on his head he had three faces, one in front blood red, and then another two that just above the midpoint of each shoulder joined the first, and at the crown all three were reattached. Another thing, I mean, like, this guy looks like he's wearing little like face earmuffs, whatever, whatever. Um, and he looks so bored. Like this Satan is just like in ennui, you know, for, for all of eternity. Um, uh, whatever, whatever. Anyway. Okay. Um, uh, right. So we got, so his faces, his other two heads, the other two faces start at his shoulders and they face to the sides and they all three of them join again up at, at the crown, right? The face in front is red. The face on the right looked somewhat yellow, somewhat white. The left in its appearance was like those who come from where the Nile descending flows. So he has one face that's black like an African, like an Ethiopian, one that's blood red, and one that's yellowish white. Somewhat yellow, somewhat white. Okay. Um, the connection to Africa, where the Nile descending flows, is really interesting to me because it seems to connect it, it seems to suggest that the three faces are also connected to humanity, and so we're sort of parallel humanity in some way. Um, uh, like sort of three groupings of, uh, of, of humanity. It reminds me of the, you know, the descendants of Sh uh, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, um, the sons of Noah, for instance. Um, uh, but of course, there's the bigger significance, but we'll get that in a second. Beneath each face of his, two wings spread out, as broad as suited so immense a bird. I've never seen a ship with sails so wide. They had no feathers, but were fashioned like a bat's, and he was agitating them, so that the three winds, so that three winds made their way out from him, 
and all Cacaitis froze before those winds. He wept out of six eyes and down three chins. Tears gushed together with a bloody froth. Um, so tears come down and join bloody drool, which is coming out of the mouth. So you've got the tears, blood, and, and frothy saliva all dripping down each of the three faces of the devil. Um, we've got the three winds that are emerging from him that are sort of associated with that there. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Is he, you know, like a sort of representation of all of humanity in some kind of abstract sense? Yes, I think perhaps in some sense. Is he a mockery of God? The mockery of the Trinity is what's most obvious, I think, right? Um, he, um, uh, his nature, it's like God's nature, right? One head and three faces, right? So he's three in one, and but he's in three separate and yet one unified. Um, you know, there's, there, there's an obvious kind of attempt to, to imitate, you know, to sort of mock the Trinity there. Um, uh, and the result, of course, is this uh, this gushing together of the tears, the saliva, and the blood, right? Um, which um, reminds me, I think, is also supposed to recall, in again a kind of inverted way, uh, the water in blood uh, that gush out of Jesus's side when he's stabbed with the spear by the centurion um, when he's on the cross. Um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, Devorah was just saying that the blood and water is like a creepy mockery, too. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and the result of this, like what is emanating out from him are these these winds. Oh, and of course, the other thing that he's like, so he's, he's in some sense, maybe like humanity. I don't know about the African thing. Um, but he's also, um, uh, but he's, he's also like, God, you know, recalling in this in this twisted and perverted fashion, uh, God and the Trinity, and also like Jesus, recalling the crucifixion, and then there's also his his angelic nature. We're reminded of his angelic nature. Uh, several of you are saying that it reminds you of various, frankly, trippy descriptions of the like the seraphim and the cherubim. Um, uh, cherubim, which are not chubby babies at all, right? Um, they're like huge, terrifying, monstrous beast creatures with flaming swords who are waiting to kill you. Um, the cherubim are completely terrifying. I have no idea where the chubby baby thing came from. Um, but um, anyway, uh, his angelic nature. Right. Um, the multiple wings flapping in various directions and in various ways. It's kind of um, it's kind of it's kind of Ezekiel. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like the Ezekiel 10 and the Isaiah 6, the cherubim of Ezekiel 10 and the seraphim of Isaiah 6. Exactly, Stephen. Those were just the ones I was thinking about, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, we see all of those things here uh, in the devil and um and then again, the source of that cold, which we've already been talking about. Within each mouth, he used it like a grinder, with gnashing teeth. Like a grinder. He can't let go the windmill thing, right? 
whatever. With gnashing teeth, he tore to bits a sinner, so that he brought much pain to three at once. So there's one sinner in each one of his three mouths. The forward sinner found that biting nothing when matched against the clawing, for at times his back was stripped completely of its hide. So he's clawing it as well. That soul up there who has to suffer most, my master said. Judas Iscariot, his head inside, he jerks his legs without. Okay, now that's no surprise, right? I mean, come on. Like, if, uh, if you were told that there is a sinner who is being tormented in the very mouth of Satan at the heart of hell, and, is, you know, and as a bonus in the circle of the traitors, and in particular in the area of the folks who betray their benefactors and whatever, okay, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, Judas Iscariot, I think, would, every, uh, would, um, would be everybody's guess as to who that is. But I bet you didn't guess the other two in advance. Of those two others, with their heads beneath, the one who hangs from that black snout is Brutus. See how he writhes and does not say a word. That other who seems so robust is Cassius. But night has come again, and it is time for us to leave. We have seen everything. Brutus and Cassius. Yeah, Stephen, that's an excellent point. Stephen says apparently betraying God incarnate trumps suicide on the punishment scale. Because Judas committed suicide. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, apparently. Apparently. Um, okay. Brutus and Cassius. Brutus and Cassius. Let's make sure we all know who Brutus and Cassius are. Right. Brutus and Cassius are the two Roman dudes who famously betrayed Julius Caesar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Caesar's killers. Julius Caesar's killers. Et tu, Brute, and all that. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's the dude. Being uh, eternally masticated by Satan. All right. It's not that it isn't thematic. I get it, right? I understand that. And even allowing for a generous dollop of uh, like it, we have to uh, you know equalize for the whole emperor thing we've seen this before Dante's own um, political leanings have been relatively clear right um, you know the number one basic political division in Italy I mean there's a lot of different shades of this uh, you know the blacks and the whites and the Guelphs and the Ghibellines and everybody else but the you know the to boil it down to its simplest form, your basic political question in Italy at this time is Pope or Emperor? Pope or the Holy Roman Emperor, right? Like, whose side... Who who, who do you have in that particular debate, right? Between the Pope and the Emperor. And, as we should all know by now, even though I've not been paying a great deal of attention to the Italian political stuff as we've gone through, um, Dante's not pro-pope, right? He's uh, pro-emperor, and we have seen many other occasions when we've seen many other occasions uh, when um, uh, those who betray the emperor, or do like, there were a bunch of fraudulent folks who were there because they, like, gave bad counsel to the emperor, or flattered the emperor, or whatever, something like that. Um, you know, you, um, 
you do something bad to a pope and it's probably the pope's fault but if you do something bad against the emperor it's not to say that every emperor is uh, is in heaven but um but i mean again his leanings have been fairly clear here but even if we allow for that right so that like the betrayal of an emperor is a huge huge deal right even if we kind of grant that as a premise really still does it still it still gets up there does it Right above, like they're they're still the most quint. I mean, they're famous traitors. Don't get me wrong. Like if it's just a popularity contest, sure, Brutus and Cassius. That's uh, a very famous act of betrayal. But you know, I don't know. I don't know that I go with. Um, uh, so I, I mean, I can't explain how it makes sense. How it's fitting. It doesn't seem to me fitting. Um, it's hard. I mean, especially if we look at it from the other perspective. I mean, it certainly makes no sense if you're saying, like, Jesus, Julius Caesar. Oh, yeah. You know, like, betray the one, betray the other. You know, it's, um, <clears throat> no. You know, um, uh, I mean, that saying it in that way makes it, to anyone familiar with the New Testament, obviously absurd. I mean, the things of Caesar and the things of God are kind of in opposite camps at times and certainly opposed uh, uh, to each other. Um, Stephen says, isn't Caesar himself up in limbo? Yeah, I think Julius Caesar is up in limbo. I think so. So he gets a good rap. I mean, he's he could be, you know, if you had other, you know, it wouldn't take a whole lot to come up with some sins that Julius Caesar could be being punished for. Um, but... Um, uh, violence against others comes to mind, but, um, uh, but, but, but yeah, I mean, okay. So sure. He's being lenient to Julius Caesar, I think himself as well. Um, but, um, yeah, I wonder, Stephen says, could Caesar represent the greatest example of earthly authority to betray? He could, even if we take them as symbolic in that way, um, it's still a pretty big statement. It's still a pretty big statement that for if you betray earthly authority, it's as bad as Judas Iscariot. I still like. I can't make that math work out. I I, I just can't balance that equation. I just can't. Um, and I'm not saying it's exactly an equation. It's a crude way to say it. Um, but. Um, yeah, but however, I will admit, um, Gerald, I don't have a candidate. You know, Gerald says, who else would Dante put in Satan's mouth if not them? Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, if you need two others, I guess they work. But even apart from the fact that, like, it's not just Brutus and Cassius in the one pan of the scale being equal to Judas Iscariot in the other pan of the scale. They outnumber him two to one, right? <laughs> two thirds of the of the worst traitors in the history of the world were the murderers of Caesar, uh, and only one third. You know, it's just I don't know. It's I've never been hugely comfortable with it. Um, and yes, Stephen, Judas is in head first. It's true, uh, but um, I don't know. I don't know. But notice. Virgil says, it's time for us to leave. We've seen him. This is it. This ends the tour, right? 
Okay. Here comes a really cool passage. Just as he asked, I clasped him around the neck, and he watched for the chance of time and place, and when the wings were open wide enough, he took fast hold upon the shaggy flanks and then descended, down from tuft to tuft, between the tangled hair and icy crusts. When we had reached the point at which the thigh revolves just at the swelling of the hip, my guide, with heavy strain and rugged work, reversed his head to where his legs had been and grappled on the hair, as one who climbs, I thought we were going back to hell. Hold tight, my master said. He panted like a man exhausted. It is by such stairs that we must take our leave of so much evil. Okay, so... He clasps onto Virgil's neck again, and Virgil comes up to the, like, rib cage of Satan. Remember, he's up to the mid-chest. Comes up to the rib cage of Satan, squeezes them down between the shaggy hair of Satan's body and the crust of the ice. So there's a, a bit of a gap there, right, in the in the, the ice in which Satan is embedded. Um, Devorah, there's no evidence that Satan notices them. I, I don't see any reason to think that they, uh, um, that they get noticed here. Um, and, um, um, and he starts climbing down. And when he gets to the inside of his thigh, right, right to where the, um, the thigh where where the thigh revolves so right by the right by the leg joint right just at the swelling of the hip that's when he turns around right um right at the inguinal ligament there we are francis sure sure um francis says you're trying not to think about the particular part of satan they're at yeah, well, we might as well, right? Um, what's at the center of the earth? What's at the center of the earth? Answer, Satan's genitalia, right? Satan's crotch is at the gravitational center of the world. Which leads me to return to the statement I made last time. Um remember what's at the middle of all things isn't the most important or the greatest thing, right? Just because they thought the universe was geocentric doesn't mean they thought that meant the Earth was awesome, right? Because, indeed, when you carry on the experiment and you go to the very, very center of the very center-most thing, um, you get Satan's privates. That's what's at the core of the world. Um... Your journey to the center of the earth ends rather alarmingly. Um, and having come to the very bottom of the world, they in fact find uh, Satan's bottom. Um, and this is absolutely the passage that you must always remember whenever you hear anybody talking about how in the Middle Ages they thought the world was round. They did not. Nobody in the Middle Ages. I won't say nobody. There have always and still are cranks. But a smaller percentage of people thought that the world was flat in the Middle Ages than do now. Um, it, is, it was not anything like a medieval idea that the world was flat 
Nobody believed that. And Dante shows that he knows exactly how gravity works. He doesn't know exactly what the center of the Earth is going to look like, but he knows exactly how gravity works. That what would happen if you passed through the very that punto, that point, which is the the Italian word he uses. That that the punto there when we had reached the punto when we you reach that point in the very center of the sphere of the world, what will happen? Well, what would happen is that you'd have to turn around 180 degrees and start to climb up. Instead, you'd climb down till you got to that point, and then you would start climbing up. Um, and um, uh, now Sarah asks, is Satan being at the center of the earth a common idea, or is this more unique to Dante? No, this is more unique to Dante. Um, I don't say that, like, everybody... You know, it was a common. It had been a common place for centuries that uh, uh, that Satan's crotch was at the core of the earth. Um, but rather, in doing that, um, Dante is sort of demonstrating the line of thinking again that, like, the central point of things is not the most important. In fact, it's it, it's the opposite. The most important thing is what is surrounding and embracing everything. What is at the center of the world is um, nasty. Nasty. Uh, Michael says, where are Satan's feet then? Sticking out the other side. Uh, sticking out into the southern hemisphere. We'll see him in just a minute. Um, yeah. <laughs> Francis, that's awesome. Uh, Satan thought the world revolved around him and Dante confirms it. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. Everything revolves around Satan, doesn't it? That's almost like a divine joke, isn't it? Um, but apart from the really cool evidence of uh, Dante's understanding of gravitational physics, um, notice what just happened here? We just This was a moment. This was a, a really important moment. Right? This is... Um, somebody was just talking about this. Yes, Stephen. Um, uh, yeah. Um, wait a second. That was Arthur who said that? Weird. Arthur, you have someone you have someone else's name. I don't understand. I guess you have the whole class. Hmm. Anyway, um, very strange. <laughs> You're not labeled. There is an Arthur Harrow on the attendee list, but it is not attached to your comments. That's really funny. Anyway, uh, I will not consider uh, Arthur's identity crisis right now. I want to go back to Stephen's comment. Um, uh, Stephen saying that um, we see Dante the Sinner getting worse and worse and closer and closer to Satan until he comes to this point in the, which is literally the turning point um, and starts heading towards Mount Purgatory starts heading towards cleansing and forgiveness um, and as Stephen says Dante has literally reached the turning point of his journey he has um, they come to the point where in order to keep going they have to turn turn around 180 degrees and reverse their direction. And by reversing their direction, they 
keep going. It is only by reversing their direction they keep going. They were going down. If they kept going down, where would they go? Nowhere. Nowhere. They'd stay there, down there by Satan's privates. By the way, punto, when we had reached the point at which the thigh revolves, the Italian word punto, I have it on good authority, uh, was also an Italian slang word for penis. So it's like, just in case you didn't get it. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, repentance. Repentance literally means to turn around, right? Um, I find this moment a fascinating, just a brilliant, brilliant illustration. Again, in thinking about that spiritual allegory of Dante the Pilgrim, right? Um, a fascinating illustration of repentance, right? Um, there has always been a kind of irony about the idea of repentance, right? In order to continue forward, in order to reach your destination, what do you have to do? Turn around. You have to turn around. Repentance, it literally means turning around, right? Doing a, doing a 180, right? Is literally what, what the word repentance means. Um, in order to keep going forward, you can only continue to go forward if you turn around, right? Um, and Dante takes that kind of spiritual irony and he makes it a, physic, a literal physical reality by situating Dante's spiritual repentance, moment of repentance, at the, at the gravitational center of the world, where what happens if you don't repent? If you don't repent, you're stuck there at the bottom of hell, keeping company uh, with uh, Satan's privates for all eternity. That's where you end up if you don't repent, because you can only, you can only proceed and to proceed, right? To, to, to do what seems counterintuitive to Dante. He's like, wait a second. I thought we're, we're going backwards. We're making reverse. Pro we turned around. We're making reverse progress now, but no, it might seem that way to him, but that's just because he doesn't understand because he's disoriented. In fact, only by turning around can they continue and head towards Mount Purgatory, head towards cleansing and ultimately towards salvation. Um, and I think that that's kind of amazing, actually. I think it's a really fascinating depiction of this thing. And notice another thing. How does he get there? Not by his own climbing, right? When last we left Dante, he was standing there, neither dead nor alive, frozen and faint, right? The one thing that he does is clasp onto Virgil. And it's Virgil who's carrying, he's being carried, right? So this moment of repentance doesn't even come under his own power. It comes through the agency of the one who's been sent from heaven, not a heavenly person themselves. It's through Virgil, right? Virgil, the poet Virgil has brought him, literally carried him to this moment of repentance, right? But it was Virgil as sent by Beatrice through St. Lucia from the Virgin Mary by the power of God. Um, so yeah, Stephen, he does, he needs another to carry to him, but he, he did need to actively grab on. Exactly. We do see both of those things in operation. I raised my eyes. So they get up to a ledge, right? And they're sitting on a ledge. 
I raised my eyes, believing I should see the half of Lucifer that I had, that I had left. Right, because I mean, we went down and then we went up, right? So I go, like, oh, we're back, and so he's looking up for the the shoulders and head of and wings of Lucifer again, right? Instead, I saw him with his legs turned up. So what does he look and he see? He sees his legs sticking up out of the out of the crevice, right? I saw him with his legs turned up, and if I then became perplexed, do let the ignorant be judges those who cannot understand what point I had just crossed. Right, so I, he's like, you, you figure out what that punto was that I just passed by? Right, no, 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 not that punto. The, the point in the middle of the earth, right? Get up, my master said. Be on your feet. The way is long. The path is difficult. The sun's already back to middle tierce. It was no palace hall, the place in which we found ourselves, but with its rough-hewn floor and scanty light, a dungeon built by nature. Before I free myself from this abyss, master, what a weighted line, before I free myself from this abyss, I said when I had stood up straight, tell me enough to see I don't mistake. Where is the ice? And how is he so placed head downward? Tell me, too, how is the sun in so few hours gone from night to morning? It's day now. It was night just a little while ago. And now all of a sudden it's day? It's like 7.30 in the morning? Um, uh, yeah, it is. It is. Um, because they've passed through the gravitation. So Dante Pilgrim doesn't get it, right? But notice, notice the again, the spiritual overlay. Right? Having passed through that repentance, what happens? Get up. Be on your feet. Um, and he stands up straight. Right? Now he's standing again under his own power. No longer neither dead nor alive. No longer, he's that place that he got to, that spiritual place that he got to, um, down, you know, confronting Satan himself. He's getting better now. But notice... The way is long. The path is difficult. He's, got, he's past the turning point, but he still has a long, long way to go. But he doesn't understand. Um, okay. For the last time, I'm going to ask for your help. Because I almost understand this. But I don't completely understand this. So I, I need your help. And he to me, you still believe you are north of the center, where I grasped the hair of the damned worm who pierces through the, word, the world. What an image. Satan is like a worm that has eaten into the heart of the planet. Oh my goodness. And you were there as... I mean, what, a, what an image for original sin that is, isn't it? And you were there as long as I descended. But when I turned, that's when you passed the point to which from every part all weights are drawn. And now you stand beneath the hemisphere, opposing that which cloaks the great dry lands and underneath whose zenith died the man whose birth and life were sinless in this world. You've, your feet are placed upon a little sphere that forms the other face of the Judeca. 
the Judeca, the Judas place. Remember how all of the zones in uh, uh, in the Ninth Circle have these names, Ptolemaica, Cana, uh, uh, right, named after Cain, right? Um, it, so the center part is Judeca, named after Judas Iscariot, right? So that, that, that innermost place of betrayal. So you're right on the opposite, the other face. You're placed upon a little sphere. So just as the surface of the ice there in the middle of the ninth circle is only a little bit above the center of the earth, you're now a little bit on the other side of the center of the earth. Uh, but you can't say you're below the center of the earth because there is no below the center of the earth. It's, all, it's always up from the center of the earth, right? So you were up here, and now you're up here, right? Um, and the amount of world that is in front to the, towards the center from you is like a little sphere. The surface of one side is Judeca, the, in, the inner part of the ninth circle, and this part is, and you're on the opposite side of that. So you're on the first step of your new journey upwards from where you came down. Um, Bruce says, damned worm like a worm in an apple or like a serpent or dragon? Yes, like all of them. Like a worm in an apple, like a serpent in a garden with an apple, like a great dragon falling from the sky. Yes, all of those things, Bruce, exactly, exactly. Um, here it is morning when it's evening there. And he whose hair has served us as a ladder is still fixed, even as he was before. Okay. Here's where... I, so, let me give help with one thing, and then I will... Um, I will ask for help in a minute. So, let me give the help. Okay. Here's my help. Forget everything you know about geography. Forget every picture of the globe you've ever seen. Forget it. And why should you forget it? Because it's 1300 and no one has ever seen it. No one has ever seen it, right? So it is so... The image, the picture of the globe, right? That, that is an, a mental image that is so ingrained in us. It's hard for us to even imagine planet Earth without immediately picturing the globe, either the globe as seen from space or the globe as seen on a, on a, on a map globe. Right. Um, it's, uh, it's impossible for us not to think of it, uh, to picture it rather visually picture it in those terms, but don't forget that we are still less than a hundred years removed from the first time anyone ever saw that. Right. So Dante's world, the world of the Middle Ages, is hundreds of years before anybody knew what the world itself, what the sphere of the world looked They knew it was a sphere. But what does it look like? How is it proportioned? It's hard for them to measure this. Uh, remember how long it's going to be until they're able to measure longitude lines. That's hard. They didn't do that for a long time. Latitude, anybody can measure, right? You can do that by measure with a sextant. Right, measuring shadows and things like that. Right, um, longitude is really—they're not going to figure out longitude reliably still for many hundreds of years from this. Right, so um, you've got to put yourself into a place where we only have a very crude idea. We know that the world is a sphere, but we don't 
know much about the world, and we don't know much about its distances and proportions, and we don't know what it looks like, okay? Also, here's another thing uh, that you have to keep in mind. Maps. Um, what's up on maps in the Middle Ages? If you're looking at a map and you're holding it the right way, what's up? Does anybody know what's up on a map? What direction is up on a map? Anybody know? Michael and Arthur, you are both correct about the place that's up at the top of the map. Yes. East. Exactly. East is up. East is up. And what is east? What is at the top of the east? What is, what is at the apex of the map? Jerusalem is the apex of the map. Yes, Jerusalem is at the top of every map. That's where you start, right? So we first we picture the globe. Then we picture a map with north facing up and the North Pole at the top of the world. The North Pole isn't at the top of the world, right? Um, that's, that's, that's not what's at the top of the world. We know about the Northern Hemisphere and we know about the Southern Hemisphere. Um, remember, Ulysses crossed over into the Southern Hemisphere where the stars are strange, remember? Um, I, but, um, uh, and he gets to a mountain that's down in the south, right? On the in the extreme other side. Um, the center of the Northern Hemisphere is Jerusalem. What's on the other side? Well, we're going to see what's on the other side, right? But, but again, don't try to ignore poles and stuff. So Northern Hemisphere, so when he says, now you stand beneath the hemisphere... Right. So again, center, they just went down and then turned around and started climbing up in this downwards direction. Right. What used to be down. Right. And so now from where they're standing, they stand beneath the hemisphere. So the, the, this is the, the hemisphere, the southern hemisphere. They're standing beneath a little chunk of it anyway. Right. And they're standing beneath that hemisphere, opposing that which cloaks the great dry lands. And underneath whose zenith died the man whose birth and life were sinless in this world. That's Jesus, right? So Jerusalem is at the zenith of the northern hemisphere, right? That's where died the man whose birth and life were sinless in this world. So the, nor so the northern hemisphere is being identified in two ways. <clears throat> First, the place with, that has Jerusalem at its zenith. And secondly, the place which is the great dry lands. Because everybody knows that the southern hemisphere is pretty much just water. It's, it's, it's just water. There's almost no land in the southern hemisphere. Everybody knows this. Okay? Everybody knows this. Um, so the great dry lands are in the northern hemisphere. And Jerusalem is the zenith. And then you've got the southern hemisphere and that's where he is. Okay. All right. So that's my help to you to help to orient you into what on earth Virgil is talking about here. But here's now where I need you to help me. I thought I, I used to think I understood this, but now I think I don't. Okay. This was the side on which he fell from heaven. For fear of him, the land that once loomed here made of the sea a veil and rose into our hemisphere. And that land, which appears upon this side, perhaps to flee from him, 
left here this hollow space and hurried upward. Let me do that again. This was the side, Southern Hemisphere. This was the side. This was the side on which he fell from heaven. So he's saying that when Satan hits the earth, he, Satan falls from heaven and hits the earth. We know he literally fell and literally made contact with the earth because he's still there, wedged in the middle of it, right? Um, he's been there ever since he fell, right? So he falls from heaven and he hits the southern hemisphere. Okay. For fear of him, the land at once that once loomed here made of the sea a veil and rose into our hemisphere. And that land, which appears upon this side, perhaps to flee from him, left here this hollow space and hurried upward. I almost understand this, or rather, I think I could understand this perfectly if I ignored one thing. And maybe I'm just being dense. It's very, very possible. Okay. This makes perfect sense. Satan comes, Satan falls down and he doesn't, he doesn't make a crater when he falls like a meteor or something, right? Instead, he doesn't hit the land and displace the land. Instead, the land flees from him. So where he falls, an opening opens up. Right? Because, like, the land is, is, is fleeing from him. Right? And the land that flees, it's got to go somewhere. So where does it go? It looms up on the other side. So he's coming down on one side of the globe, right? And on that side of the globe, the earth shrinks away from him as he falls. But it's got to go somewhere so it pops out the other side of the world. Right? Makes sense. Okay. And I can understand that perfectly. This describes exactly which... That's hell. That's what hell is. Hell is where the world shrank away from Satan. Right? Uh, uh, hell is the cavity. It's the emptiness that is left when God's creation shrank back in horror and disgust from Satan as he fell down. So in that way, the fall of Satan literally makes... Hell. Hell is creation's response to Satan's presence. Love that. That's amazing. But it's better because what's the Audi on the other side? Right? The this not concussion crater, but this this repulsion crater, right, that is made uh in the earth pops out the other side, right? And what's the thing that pops out the other side? Mount Purgatory. Right, also created by the fall of Satan, because sin, sin is now entered the world with Satan, and sin necessitates both hell and Mount Purgatory, right, and the two of them are parallel to each other. They are both the place where sin is dealt with, right, in one place by <clears throat> by justice and the other place by grace. And they're like each other, except they're opposites of each other. 
And just as hell is this series of, you know, this, this steps that go in and ever down. So Mount Purgatory is a mountain with terraces that are like a wedding cake going ever up. Okay. So it seems pretty clear that in fact, Mount Purgatory even looks like the other side that got popped out, uh, when Satan plunged down in. So all of this, all of this, um, makes perfect sense to me. I get it. And that's what I always understood about this passage. Then I was reading it this time and I got all confused because that only works if Satan falls and hits the Northern Hemisphere. Not the Southern Hemisphere. Because the land pops out in the Southern Hemisphere. The opposite side of the world from Jerusalem is Mount Purgatory. It's... That's... So how could he hit the Southern Hemisphere and do this? That's where the bump is, not the hole. The hole was totally um, on the Northern Hemisphere side. So, and I get the business about the sea and the veil, right? The, so the land, the land makes of the sea a veil, which is a really cool description, like when you imagine something enormous and massive rising up out of the sea, right? And the, uh, the, the surface of the water first bowing up and then running off, right? Like, uh, you know, so it's like the, the, the Mount, Mount Purgatory rises from the, the ocean, uh, and the sea parting like a veil around it. That's awesome. I love that. Right. Uh, it's a beautifully, um, uh, graphic image. And it rose into our hemisphere. So just to remember, land in the northern hemisphere, water in the southern hemisphere, right? Now there's land in the southern hemisphere where they didn't used to be. And some of the water spills over into the northern hemisphere. Um, I don't know what that's about. I don't know which water exactly. Is that like where the Mediterranean comes from? I'm not sure, uh, honestly. But, um, um, but okay. Um, Okay, so... Right, so Arthur... A, a related question to my problem with the trajectory of... It's Satan's trajectory, that's my only problem. Again, I feel like I understand the hell, purgatory, veil of water, displacement of water thing. That I, I got all that. I got all that. It's Satan's trajectory that bothers me. Because it says that he hits the southern hemisphere. I mean... It's this is was the side on which he fell from heaven. This one, the southern hemisphere, where they currently are, right? And it also makes sense. Somebody was saying Devorah was pointing out, and and um, um, Bruce was asking, did Satan fall head first or feet first? Well, exactly, right? Head first. I gotta think head first, right? No way Satan fell feet first. It doesn't even make sense. So that too, the orientation of Satan would seem to support also the I fell and hit the Southern Hemisphere thing. But how could he fall and hit the Southern Hemisphere and create an any on the... So he comes in and... and I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it. 
don't understand. Leanne wants to do a reenactment of the fall of Lucifer at Myth Mood. <laughs> Let's not. Let's definitely not do that. <laughs> Leanne, that's congratulations, Leanne. That is the worst idea for a Myth Mood reenactment of all time. I don't think it's even possible to have a worse suggestion than that. Um, uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> awesome. All right. Okay. So I'm, 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 I'm looking at your suggestions here. See if, see if you can help me. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. Stephen says, I think it's saying that when he hit the Southern hemisphere, the land fled to the Northern hemisphere to get away. And then the interior portion of the earth fled away to create the cavity, but went around behind Satan to rise up. So the climb up Mount Purgatory reverses Satan's fall by following the same path in reverse. Okay. I, but the land doesn't flee to the Northern Hemisphere because that's where all the land already was. The land is already in the Northern Hemisphere. The result of Satan's fall is net increase of land in the Southern Hemisphere, is what it says. Um, yeah. Mr. Dude with No Bowels on YouTube. I never know how to read your name. Nimblungust. It's got no consonants or no vowels. I don't know how to do it. Um, it doesn't even look Welsh. Um, but um, uh, um, okay, okay, okay. All right. Got it. I see. Yes, yes, right, right. The mistake that I'm making is I'm mistaking the present situation of the Northern Hemisphere for the original situation of the Northern Hemisphere. Okay. So in originally, before Satan's fall, all the land was in the Southern Hemisphere. Okay. So he pushes all the land. It doesn't, it's, so the effect of his fall is not just a pop Mount Purgatory out the other side, which is how I had always pictured it. The result of his fall is to push all the, is to displace all the land. So he falls head first, boom, and all of the land, like the entire planet, not just the bits around it to, to make the hole, right? But the entire planet, like, shoves sideways so that the land which was sticking out on the southern hemisphere now all migrates. Now it all pops out the other side, and that's the... So it's not Mount Purgatory rising from the sea with the making of the Sea of Veil. The entire... Land mass, the entire Eurasian and African landmass makes of the Sea of Veil and rises out of the other side. Right. Got it. Right. Okay, yeah, Arthur, you were seeing this too. Okay, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Devore, as you say, it dodged. It dodged. Okay, right. It's the original continental drift. Right. No, this makes sense. So, Mount Purgatory is not is only the indirect result essentially 
it's not that Mount Purgatory is the only land created in the Southern Hemisphere after Satan's fall. It's that it's the only land left in the Southern Hemisphere after Satan's fall. Right. Okay, so here comes Satan headfirst, and the entire planet is shifting under him. The land that once loomed here in the south, of course, made of the Sea of Veil and rose into our hemisphere, the north. Our hemisphere is the... Where we are is the south currently, but our hemisphere, where we live, is the northern hemisphere. Okay. And that land which appears upon this side, in the south, perhaps to flee from him, left here this hollow space and hurried upward. That's Mount Purgatory. Okay, so the entire, all the continents, so the world, not the planet, but the world, like where people live, like the world in which, for instance, one has fame and a worldly reputation, the world in which all of Italian politics is played out, all of it is the result of the fall of Satan. The entire landmass, to its roots, the entire world is a result. There was this, a shift in the world. I love this. Okay. I, don't, I, ne I never understood that. I always misunderstood that passage. I was, I was clearly enamored by and taken in by the obvious symmetry, or like anti-symmetry, sort of, between purgatory and hell, that I always misunderstood that. Okay, but hang on. Yeah. Um, right. Then, where he... But, so, the whole world is shuddering away from him, right? But he still hits it. And when he hits it, that's when the land, perhaps to flee from him, leaves this hollow space the hollow space that is hell, I think, and hurries upward. So it's still true that hell and purgatory um, uh, are, are, are the result of Satan's fall, as makes sense. It's just that it's all pre-dated, in a sense, by the spiritual continental drift the corruption of the entire earth yes yes yeah and you're right Stephen we don't know that 100% of the northern hemisphere but it kind of sounds like it doesn't it kind of sounds like it okay okay Whew. I think I get that now oh man seriously this rocks my world Yes, exactly, Bruce. The conical hole they spiraled down on the northern half of the planet. Where did that dirt go? South. Yes. That's what left the hollow space and hurried upward. That's, that's still Mount Purgatory. That's still M Mount Purgatory. Yeah, absolutely. It's still Mount Purgatory. Yep. Um, right, it could be that there was land all over and this is an explanation for wh why it's now all in the Northern Hemisphere. Right. It, yes, Stephen, actually, I would sort of incline to that view, actually. Um, the idea that it's very Genesis 1 and 2, 
to say that in the beginning, all of the world was designed to be, um, you know, habitable. Uh, they thought that the Southern Hemisphere was all water and they thought it uninhabitable. Torrid zones and all that kind of thing. Um, don't worry about it if you don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, they thought it uninhabitable. But that was a bad thing. Like that. So I, I, that, 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 that should be a result of the fall. It makes perfect sense. Right? That when God creates the world and says that it's very good in Genesis 1, and God creates Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, and tells them to rule the world and to subdue it, that he's thinking of the whole world. That the whole world was habitable originally, and then Satan comes down and there goes the ecosystem. Right? Um, yes. Yes. Bruce says the other side of the world is Paralandra. Almost. Almost. It's also... Like we saw with Ulysses, Valinor also, isn't it? But anyway, we're almost done. In fact, we are done. My guide and I came on that hidden road to make our way back into the bright world, and with no care for any rest we climbed, he first, I following, until I saw through a round opening some of those things of beauty heaven bears. It was from there that we emerged to see once more the stars." And each of the three cantica end with the word stars. Um, Inferno, Purgatorio, and uh, Paradiso all end with the word stars. Um, and again, we see this is the promise of the spiritual journey to come. My God and I came. That, that hidden road that makes their way back to the bright world, um, they continue on without rest, climbing. He first, I following. He doesn't have to be carried anymore. He can walk on his own, but he still has to follow in the footsteps of Virgil as we go up. And remember that, because we will come to the point in the Paradiso when he no longer is following in Virgil's footsteps, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, they're emerging into daylight, right? Because it was night in the Northern Hemisphere and it's day in the Southern Hemisphere. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, and that's it. Thus ends the Inferno. I told you we'd finish tonight. Did take a little bit of extra time as I thought it might, but that's okay. Um, thank you all. This has been a really fun discussion, including, like, I just got my own mind blown here in the penultimate slide of our discussion, uh, as I am now, like, reconfiguring my entire understanding of, like, the whole spiritual geography of the world, according to Dante, that I never understood properly before. Really, really good. Um, Thank you guys uh, for this discussion. Don't forget that in two weeks, on May 26th, we're going to start The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. Um, uh, so uh, get a copy of Heinlein. We're going to be reading, we're going to read the first three chapters by week one. Um, uh, we'll see if we can cover the first, my goal is to cover the first three chapters in, uh, uh, in, in week one, and we'll see how we do. Um, uh, Steven says, can't wait to convince people to vote for Purgatorio. Yep, we'll see. We'll, there will be another election um, late summer, early, probably early fall, I'm thinking. Um, but remember the plan. Moon is a harsh mistress. The nature of Middle Earth together. And then we will see what the electorate says after that. Thanks very much, everybody. Have a good night. And I will see you again soon. Bye now.